Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. for tuning in to episode 12. I hope you're hanging in there. I know that this holiday season will be undoubtedly different and likely more isolated for you, but I would urge you to, you know, video call your friends and family, connect with your therapist, take walks outdoors, cuddle your pets, and do things that make you feel better. Because right now, it's about the small wins, isn't it? And as awful as coronavirus is, a particularly horrible person succumbed to it recently on November 13th. Peter William Sutcliffe, also known as the Yorkshire Ripper, who was convicted of murdering 13 women and attempting to murder seven others between 1975 and 1980, died in University Hospital of North Durham, age 74, where it is rumored that he refused treatment for COVID-19 because he was too manly for it. And this was after having previously returned to HMP Franklin following treatment for a, subsist- for a suspected heart attack at the same hospital two weeks prior. That will be definitely a case I cover in the future, but hopefully his death brings closure to the victims and their families. Now this week, I'm covering Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown, a serial killing couple at one point known as the Black Bonnie and Clyde that terrorized the Midwest in 1984. They were responsible for eight murders, seven rapes, three kidnappings, and 14 armed robberies in a frenzied 48-day spree. And for this episode, the sources I use include Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown, Odyssey of Mayhem by Mark Gribben. They, there was an episode of Born to Kill, a fantastic true crime documentary series that you can find on YouTube. And this one was called Love Affair with Death an article in the Toledo Blade by James Drew, Wikipedia, Murderpedia, Criminal Minds Fandom Wiki, as well as an article by the Associated Press called Coleman Nightmare Endures for Families of Victims, and that was published on February 12, 1987, a few years after the crimes. But let's dive in. Alton Coleman was born on November 6, 1955 in Waukegan, Illinois, a predominantly working-class city situated approximately 35 miles north of downtown Chicago. He did not have a stable childhood home. His mother was a sex worker, so he was brought up by his grandmother, who was referred to as a, quote, voodoo queen. There were reports of animal sacrifice and other rituals at the home. As a child, he witnessed deviant sexual activity, which later proved to have devastating consequences. Additionally, he was often bullied for wetting his pants, which earned him the nickname Pissy. He had lower intelligence and was a middle school dropout. Family members and law enforcement that dealt with Coleman described him as a loner who generally kept to himself and was slow to emote. He also had a reputation for a high sex drive and was reportedly pansexual, meaning he was willing to engage in sex with anyone at any time. By his teenage years, he was already getting into trouble, often being picked up for property damage like breaking windows in his housing project. 
He also worked as a pimp and a drug dealer. On December 27, 1973, at 18 years old, Coleman committed his first known sexual offense. He, along with an accomplice, abducted 54-year-old Eleanor McIntyre at gunpoint, raped her, and stole her money and car. Through plea negotiations, Coleman was only convicted of armed robbery and spent time at Joliet Penitentiary. Paroled out in late 1976, he was again put on trial for raping 17-year-old Sherry Patterson, but acquitted when he managed to convince the jury that the act was consensual. While in pre-trial detention at Lake County Jail, he was charged with sexually assaulting three fellow male prisoners, but was only convicted of battery. In 1980, he was again acquitted on charges of raping 22-year-old Dorothy Hawkins, a member of the U.S. Navy. In 1981, he was involved in the sexual assault of an underage girl and may have himself raped a 14-year-old friend of the latter. The case against him was dismissed for lack of probable cause. The next year, he was a suspect in the rape murder of a 15-year-old girl. And the following year, he was charged with twice molesting his own eight-year-old niece, Melinda Snow, by Snow's mother and Alton's half-sister, Terry Coleman. Again, the case was dismissed, this time because of insufficient evidence. On February 28, 1984, in North Chicago, Coleman raped at knife point 14-year-old Chalandra Thompson, whose mother, Dorothea, he had approached two days before. He was arrested for this crime and arraigned in May, shortly before embarking on a crime spree with his girlfriend, Deborah Brown. According to former Gary, Indiana prosecutor Thomas Vaines, he targeted young girls because he deemed them to be pure, which excited him sexually. Deborah Denise Brown was born in Chicago in 1962, one of 11 children. She's borderline intellectually disabled with an IQ in the range of 59 to 74. She also suffered head trauma as a child and was diagnosed with dependent personality disorder by a psychiatrist. She was described as exceedingly shy and timid. Much like Coleman, she had an awful childhood. She experienced sexual abuse, neglect, and struggled with rejection. She moved to Waukegan age 12, and in 1984, she met Alton Coleman at a bar. She was engaged to another man, but Alton swept her off her feet and she moved in with him shortly thereafter. Although a willing participant in Coleman's assaults and murders, Brown had no history of violence or any criminal history prior to their relationship. On June 19, 1984, nine-year-old Vernita Wheat's badly decomposed body was discovered in a dilapidated, abandoned building in Waukegan. Her body was covered with a brown corduroy jacket buttoned up the back, reminiscent of a straight jacket. Bernita had been raped and strangled during a prolonged attack. Her body had wire wrapped around her torso, up her back, and around her neck. She had been there for approximately three weeks. Bernita had disappeared three weeks earlier on May 29th after her mother Juanita's boyfriend, Robert Knight, took her to get a stereo. Juanita and Bernita lived in Kenosha. Robert was an automobile manufacturer who also lived in Kenosha and had recently befriended the family. He even had taken her and the children to a local carnival. But when Robert and Vernita never returned, Juanita became frantic and contacted police. But they couldn't get a handle on Robert Knight. The address he'd given didn't exist. 
But when Juanita was shown a series of pictures, she picked out Robert Knight. But in fact, it was Alton Coleman. Alton Coleman was then awaiting trial for rape, but when police rushed to his address in nearby Waukegan, they were met by Deborah Brown. Police found her shy, bashful, and scared. Didn't make sense why she lived there. On May 31st, Coleman befriended Robert Carpenter in Waukegan and spent the night at his home. The next day, he borrowed Carpenter's car to go to the store and never returned. Now, in this time period, the mid-80s, Gary, Indiana was a very depressed economic area. I'd argue it still is, but despite having formerly been an industrial hub, it had descended into an extreme level of poverty and crime. The once beautiful architecture was run down. In June of that year, a nine-year-old girl, Annie Hilliard, came out of the woods and collapsed on the ground. A neighbor called for police. She and her seven-year-old niece had been abducted and taken into the woods. Annie was rushed to the hospital where it was confirmed she'd been sexually assaulted. She told police that a man and a woman raped and choked her to the point of unconsciousness, but somehow she managed to revive and survive. Her seven-year-old niece, Tamika Turks, was still missing. Hours later, on June 19th, a search party made a grisly discovery in the woods that Annie had emerged from. Tamika's body was found with the hemmed edge of a fitted bedsheet tied tightly around her neck. She had been strangled to death, her clothing had been shredded, and her hands and feet were tied using strips of this clothing. Earlier that day, the two girls were met by a man and a woman when they were out getting a hot dog and some candy. The couple baited the girls with the promise of some clothes, and the two innocents walked a mile and a half into that wooded area. After they'd strangled Tamika, they put her body in the bushes and then sexually assaulted Annie. At one point, they overheard Tamika making noise, so the woman got up and went to finish her off. Annie recounted a nickname one of them had used. The man referred to the woman as Slick. The community was undoubtedly shocked by what happened. The day that Tamika's body was discovered, Coleman befriended 25-year-old Gary resident Donna Williams. Coleman and Brown kidnapped her in her own car and drove 283 miles to Detroit, Michigan. On June 28th, Coleman and Brown entered the home of Mr. and Mrs. Palmer Jones of Dearborn Heights, Michigan, whom they beat severely. Coleman ripped the telephone from their wall before stealing money and their car. On July 5th, Coleman crossed Virginia Temple's path where she met him and Brown on July 5th at the home of Reverend Ernie Jackson, associate minister of the New Light Baptist Church. Mr. Jackson told the Toledo Blade in 1984 that Ms. Temple was visiting his wife when he invited Coleman, whom he didn't know, to his house on Palmetto Avenue. Ms. Temple had been divorced for a year and planned to attend the University of Toledo to finish her undergraduate degree. She had met her husband at Bowling Green State University and wanted to become a home economics teacher, said her sister Dolores Shy. After meeting her at Reverend Jackson's, Coleman walked Ms. Temple to a fast food restaurant. Quote, he was with her for two days, said Ms. Shy. It was not like he killed her and walked out of the door. He walked her to the corner store over the bridge on Auburn Avenue to get some money. When Edith Harris, Virginia Temple's mother, came to pick her up on July 7th, six-year-old Raymond Temple wouldn't open the door. An aunt then came and saw a blood spot on the floor through a window in the front door. The house was torn up. 
They called police, and later that day, the bodies of Miss Temple and her eldest, 10-year-old daughter, Rochelle, were found in the crawl space under their home at 2901 Auburn. Rochelle was strangled and sexually assaulted. Virginia was beaten, and her mouth was stuffed with her baby's T-shirt. On the same morning as the Temple murders, Coleman and Brown entered the home of Frank and Dorothy Duvendak in Toledo, who were bound with electrical cords which had been cut. The couple stole the Duvendak's money and car, as well as Mrs. Duvendak's stolen watch, who was later found under another victim. Later that day, Coleman and Brown visited the Dayton home of Reverend Millard Gay and his wife Catherine. The two stayed with the Gays and accompanied them to a religious service on July 9th, where the next day the Gays dropped off the couple in downtown Cincinnati. On July 11th, Donna Williams's badly decomposed body was discovered in an abandoned building in Detroit, about half a mile away from where her car was found. The cause of death was again ligature strangulation using pantyhose, and she had also been raped. The next day, Tony Story, a 15-year-old girl who lived in Cincinnati's Over the Rhine neighborhood, disappeared. Her body was discovered eight days later. A bracelet that had been stolen from the temples was found under Story's body. And on the day of Tony Story's disappearance, the FBI added Coleman to its 10 most wanted list as a, quote, special edition, as the 11th most wanted. Coleman was just the 10th person since the initiation of the list in 1950 to merit inclusion in such a manner. John Douglas's investigative support unit was called in during the Coleman-Brown manhunt and asked a fugitive assessment. It seemed pretty clear that Coleman was the dominant personality of the duo, and that he was prompted to embark on an interstate rampage when stress caused by his court appearance became unbearable to him. From his background and rap sheet, Douglas was able to deduce that what motivated him were fantasies of sexually dominating and controlling other people, because, like many other serial rapists, this is what made him feel good and satisfied in his life a satisfaction he certainly didn't get from personal accomplishments or relationships. The fact that most of his violence was directed against other blacks spoke of the essentially sexual nature of his crimes, rather than some general rage against society, which was also there and also showed up in later acts. Since all he ever knew of life was lawlessness from an early age, Coleman was able to assimilate his sexual crimes into a way of providing to himself like if it were his own job. That is why he robbed and carjacked his victims in addition to raping, beating, and killing them. Also, profiles correctly deduced Coleman couldn't stay away too long from some place he found familiar or secure. Once he was out of Waukegan or the Chicago area, he was out of his element. In fact, they even predicted the highway he eventually took back home. For what concerns Brown, whom Douglas personally interviewed in prison, he found her to be a very passive and compliant person who would be defined by whoever was influencing her. Her relationship with Coleman was almost one of slave to master. On the other hand, she never displayed any evidence of conscience. And if again put under the influence of someone like Coleman, Douglas thought, she would resume where she left off. Coleman and Brown bicycled into Norwood on July 13th at about 9.30 a.m., Less than three hours later, they drove away in a car belonging to Harry Walters, who they left unconscious, and his wife Marlene, who was raped and beaten to death. Walters survived and later testified that they had met the couple to discuss their potential purchase of a camper, but that Coleman attacked him with a wooden candlestick. 
The coroner indicated Marlene had been bludgeoned approximately 20 to 25 times during her violent assault. She was left unrecognizable. The attack was so vicious. Shards of broken soda bottle, which bore Coleman's fingerprints, were found in the living room, and bloody footprints made by two different pairs of shoes were found in the basement. The Walters Red Plymouth Reliant, as well as money, jewelry, and shoes, were stolen. Two bicycles, clothes, and shoes not belonging to the Walters had been left behind. Two days later, the Plymouth was found abandoned in Kentucky, where Coleman and Brown had kidnapped Olene Carmichael Jr., a college professor from Williamsburg, and drove back to Ohio with Carmichael locked in the trunk of his car. On July 17th, they abandoned this stolen vehicle in Dayton, and Carmichael, who was still locked in the trunk, was luckily rescued by authorities. Coleman and Brown returned to the home of the gays, accosting them with guns. Reverend Gay, who at this time recognized Coleman as a wanted fugitive, asked, quote, why you want to do us like that, like this? Coleman responded, quote, I'm not going to kill you, but we generally kill them where we go. Coleman and Brown took their car and headed back toward Evanston, Illinois. Along the way, they stole another car in Indianapolis and killed its owner, 75-year-old Eugene Scott. Three days later, on July 20th, Coleman and Brown were arrested in Evanston, finally. As they walked westward across an intersection, they passed immediately in front of a motorist who was from Coleman's neighborhood in Waukegan. The motorist had driven north to a gas station and notified the police. The couple were soon spotted sitting on portable bleachers in an empty Mason Park. As two police sergeants approached Coleman, Brown had, was observed walking away toward the rear of the park. Two other officers stopped Brown as she tried to exit the park, searched her, and found a gun in her purse. The pair were taken into custody without incident and transported to the Evanston Police Station, where both were identified by their fingerprints. As Coleman was strip-searched, a steak knife was found between two pairs of sweat socks he was wearing. A shopping bag full of varied t-shirts and caps was found in the couple's possession. Officers learned that the pair stopped every three to four blocks as they walk and changed shirts and caps. A week after their arrest, more than 50 law enforcement officials from six jurisdictions met to plan their strategy for prosecuting Coleman and Brown. Seeking the death penalty for both, Michigan was quickly ruled out because it did not employ capital punishment. Coleman was tried in Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois, and was sentenced to death as well as several years of imprisonment four times one for the murder of Marlene Walters, one for the murder of Tony Story, one for the murder of Tamika Turks, and one for the kidnap and murder of Renita Wheat. During the course of his Ohio and Illinois trials, Coleman acted as his own lawyer and got to the point of calling Brown as a rebuttal witness. He personally cross-examined her in an attempt to make it look like she in fact murdered Marlene Walters, not him. Needless to say, the strategy didn't work. It was decided to give Ohio the first attempt at sentencing, with U.S. Attorney Dan K. Webb stating, quote, We are convinced that the prosecution in Ohio can most quickly and most likely result in the swiftest imposition of death penalty against Alton Coleman and Deborah Brown. The state of Ohio convicted Coleman and Brown, finding them guilty of the rape and murder of Tony Story in Cincinnati and Marlene Walters in Norwood, but not for the murders of Virginia and Rochelle Temple in Toledo. Coleman and Brown were both sentenced to death. Coleman's case was sent to the U.S. Supreme Court several times between 1985 and 2002, but his numerous arguments that his conviction and death sentence were unconstitutional failed to sway the justices. However, Coleman's death sentence in relation to the story killing was overturned in a separate proceeding. 
Despite this, his death sentence in relation to the Walters murder remained upheld. In addition to the death sentences, Coleman and Brown were each sentenced to 20 years in prison for transporting their kidnapped victim, Olene Carmichael, across the state line. In prison, Coleman was diagnosed with mixed personality disorder, displaying antisocial, narcissistic, and obsessive features, with additional diagnoses including epileptic spasms, psychosis, and borderline personality disorder. Brown was diagnosed as borderline intellectually disabled with dependent personality disorder. On April 25, 2002, the Ohio Supreme Court rejected a claim by Coleman's attorney that the state's plan to accommodate the large number of victims and survivors who wanted to view the execution would turn it into a, quote, spectator sport. So many victims and survivors of Coleman's crimes were allowed to witness the execution that prison officials had to set up a closed-circuit viewing venue outside of the building. For his last meal, Coleman ordered a well-done filet mignon smothered with mushrooms, fried chicken breast, a salad with French dressing, sweet potato pie topped with whipped cream, French fries, collard greens, onion rings, cornbread, broccoli with melted cheese, biscuits and gravy, and cherry coke. On April 26, reciting The Lord is My Shepherd over and over from Psalm 23, Alton Coleman was executed by lethal injection in the death chamber at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility in Lucasville. Reginald Wilkinson, director of the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction, said Coleman had not directly expressed remorse for the killings, but that he, quote, admitted what he's done in his own convoluted way. Brown, who was originally sentenced to be executed in Ohio for her complicity in the crimes, had her death sentence commuted to life imprisonment by Governor Richard Celeste in 1991. In commuting Brown's sentence, Celeste cited her low IQ scores and her master-slave relationship with Coleman influencing her actions. Brown was one of eight Ohio death row inmates, including all four of the Ohio's female death row inmates, to have her sentence commuted by Celeste, a staunch opponent of capital punishment, a week before he left office. Despite her nonviolent history before the spree, Brown was initially unrepentant for her acts. During the sentencing phase for her first Ohio trial, she sent a note to the judge which read in part, quote, I killed the bitch and don't give a damn. I had fun out of it. She was also given a death sentence for the murder of Tamika Turks in Indiana. However, that sentence was ultimately commuted to 140 years imprisonment in 2018. Brown is currently serving her sentence without possibility of parole in the Dayton Correctional Institution in Dayton, Ohio. She finally expressed remorse for her crimes when she apologized to the victims' families in a video in 2005. What makes this case unique is encapsulated well by forensic psychologist Louis Schlesinger. Quote, the vast majority of sexual murderers operate by themselves. It makes it much more dangerous when a man and woman are operating together. Children, women, and almost anyone will feel a lot more comfortable if there is a woman present, so it's a very good way to disarm potential victims. Deborah would do anything Alton wanted her to do. It's thought that Coleman manipulated her and that she would follow him and do anything to please him. She went from church mouse to serial killer. Her transformation from girlfriend to willing accomplice is key to these crimes. And here's a quote from an article in 1987, a years after the attacks had occurred. The nightmare endures for the victims' families. The 12-year-old, which is Annie Hilliard, was sexually attacked by Coleman and Ms. Brown after watching the murder Tamika Turks. The 12-year-old now suffers severe headaches and screaming fits and vows never to marry, said her mother, who was also the grandmother of the murder victim. 
She says things like, she'll never get married, she'll never have children, and she asks me if she's pure, the mother said. The mother told the Post Tribune in an interview published Wednesday. The mother said she took an overdose of sleeping pills after Tamika's murder and had refrained from discussing the case publicly until last week. Quote, our family will never be the same. Adding, she said, adding that Tamika's mother, Laverne Turks, moved from Gary because of the bitter memories of the slaying. That sums up the atrocities that these two evil individuals left in their wake. And now for something beautiful. This week I've chosen Smashbox's Photo Finish Foundation Primer. I've used this product probably since high school, it's so great. It was developed to help makeup look better and last longer. It's a cruelty-free and vegan primer gel that instantly smooths and blurs flaws while nourishing skin with vitamins A and E. It's formulated without parabens, sulfates, phthalates, oil, fragrance, and talc. So how you use it is essentially you smooth a layer over clean, moisturized skin, let it set for 15 seconds, and apply makeup. You can wear it alone or under makeup, and it can also be used over makeup for touch-ups. I'm a huge fan of this primer. It really does allow for a smooth application and has great staying power. It fills in lines and pores and glides on and gives you really a flawless finish. As I said, it's lightweight, oil-free, ideal for all skin types, cruelty-free, and vegan. You can find it on Smashbox's website, Ulta, Sephora, and most department stores. I've tried other primers as well, but I really haven't had anyone that has topped this. And while I use the original, there are color correcting versions, there's a lighter formula. I highly recommend it depending on what your needs are, but um, they, they are, I think, very well known for their primers and for good reason. Alright friends, thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of Crime and Beauty. Take special care of yourself in the week ahead. Have a safe, healthy, and restful Thanksgiving, and I'll be back next week with more. You can follow Crime and Beauty on Instagram at crimeandbeauty.podcast, on Facebook at Crime and Beauty Podcast, and you can listen at crimeandbeauty.podbean.com or on Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. Would love to hear from you. Feel free to shoot me a Gmail at crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com. Please rate and review. Any case suggestions, I'm all yours. And until next time, thanks for listening and stay beautiful.